Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 1. We are going to begin an open-ended series on the book of Psalms. Now, frankly, I am simply not good enough to preach through all 150 Psalms without any breaks. And heaven forbid that it would be my fault that the Word of God would be boring, okay? Now, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher who preached... You know, to 10,000 before the uh, invention of uh, microphones, preached 443 sermons from the book of Psalms. 34 of those sermons were from Psalm 119. Almost 8% of his psalms came from that, or sermons came from that one psalm. Uh, and he wrote the definitive preacher's commentary on Psalms, Treasury of David. And it's uh, four volumes about this big. I got my copy from a retiring pastor who got his copy from a retiring pastor. It was published back in the 1880s, and uh, it's got the tiny little print on it, so it's just jammed full of great stuff, and at the end of every uh, section, it has um, hints for the country preacher. I love those, okay? (laughs) Hints for the country preacher. Um, Now, I say that this series will be open-ended in that it is my hope that over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, however long the Lord gives to us together, that we will return periodically to the Psalms for a, you know, a, a month or two and go through and, until we have finished the entire book of the Psalms, all 150 of the Psalms. Now, we can do this because the book of Psalms is not chronological. I understand that Psalm 1 was not necessarily written first, and Psalm 150 was not necessarily written last. Uh, But over the course of some 900 approximate years, all of these psalms were collected and put into a unit, and we'll see how they're divided uh, as we get into it. So it is not imperative that we begin at Psalm 1, although Psalm 1 does serve as a good introduction uh, and begin there and end with Psalm 150, and although Psalm 150 does serve kind of a, um, much like the end of Jude did, a mixture of doxology and benediction together. Uh, so there are good bookends, but it's not necessarily we go um, straight through. Uh, the Psalms are grouped into five distinct books. Now you think there's only one book of Psalms, well there are actually five books within the book of Psalms. And they are divided every 40, some are 40 chapters, some are 30, uh, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Now, so because of the structure of Psalms, we are able to jump around and go from here to there. Now, next week we will begin in earnest with Psalm 46. Now, for any good Presbyterian, uh, you know that Psalm 46 is where Martin Luther got his um, mighty fortress, okay, and it's, you know... We have to sing that every Reformation Sunday. Um, and, and, and he wrote hymns as a form of teaching the Reformation theology. Uh, because not a lot of people got books and they were still uh, relatively expensive to get. He would write hymns and send them out to the churches that were growing. And that is how they would begin to learn this Reformed theology. So next week on Reformation Sunday, we'll be in Psalm 46. Thanksgiving, we'll be in Psalm 30, Psalm 106, in Advent, around Christmas, 
Psalm 96, 98, 147. Uh, During Lent, there are 40-some psalms of lament that we can choose from. Good Friday will be Psalm 22, and and that'll be very clear. Uh, Easter morning, we could be in Psalm 18, or 30, or 67, or 97. Okay, Uh, So you see that there is a psalm for almost every occasion, and it is the most quoted book in the New Testament, from, from the Old Testament. Now, it happens to be the longest book, so that kind of makes sense, but it also points to the fact that there is much about Christ in the book of Psalms, much about Christ in the book of Psalms. Now, since the days of the New Testament, one of the ways that God's people have worshipped has been through singing. Now, we see in uh, about uh, 100 A.D., the philosopher Pliny wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan about these people this way, these Christians, and they sing psalms to Christ as if he is God. So we see this going all the way back to the, the beginning of the second century. In 1415, the reformer John Huss sang praises to God as he was burned at the stake. And at one point in the persecution of the French Huguenots, uh, their singing so angered the king that he had a band moved up next to the place where they were being executed as to drown out their songs of praise to the Lord as they were being martyred for their faith. As I said, during the Reformation, much of that theology was spread through hymn writing. We have uh, later in the Pietist movement, Spenner and Franck uh, would write hymns, and, and, and it was, that movement was really characterized by hymn singing and psalm singing. Uh, when you get to the great revivals of Wesley and Moody, uh, and, 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 their, and, and Moody's uh, main uh, hymn writer, Sankey, they were marked by this uh, upsurge in hymn singing and hymn writing, uh, and great praises to the Lord through singing. And one day, as we read in Revelation, we'll all be gathered around the throne singing praises to the Lamb of God. So it should come as no surprise that the longest Bible, longest book in the Bible, uh, is about worship. And it is designed that we might use this to help us worship our Heavenly Father. God loves to hear his people sing. He loved to hear his people sing his praises. And the book of Psalms is here in God's inspired word to help us achieve that, that we might sing his praises in the way that he likes. That doesn't mean that we have to be exclusively psalm singers. That would make us um, covenanters, I believe, uh, that they sing only the psalms. Now, it's nice to do, and we have a, uh, the Psalter, and during the time that we're in the psalms, we'll sometimes sing psalms, um, that are given uh, tunes that we know. Okay, So if you've ever sung from the Psalter, you, you understand that. But there was a time uh, many years ago when a prerequisite for admission into the priesthood was a memorization of the entire book of Psalms. Yeah, they didn't have TV then, so I guess that's what they did. Okay. Now, as I mentioned before, Psalm 1 is a good introduction, uh, it, and, it, and Psalm, really Psalm 46, 47, 48, 49, and 50 serve as kind of a hallelujah chorus to the end of the Psalms. Okay, so they make a good ending there. And here, let's look at Psalm 1 just for a moment. Now, we read it together, and, and I, I just commented briefly, this is, a, if, if we... Uh, you know, equated with cooking, this is a recipe. 
here. And, and I don't want to reduce the word of God to you do these things and you get this, this outcome. But we know if you walk in the way of evil, what is going to happen to you? Uh, bad things, okay? Bad things are going to happen. If you walk in the way of, of the word of God, uh, then obedience is demonstrated and the Lord's blessing is upon you. It makes very clear here how blessed is the man. And first we get the negatives who does not do something. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the path of the sinners. He does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. I want to be blessed by the Lord. So the first question you should ask yourself is, obviously, do you know him? That's the first thing. Second is, do I walk in the counsel of the wicked? Is my life full of the counsel of non-believers? Now, please don't understand that, that everybody that we must deal with has to be a believer. You know, if you go to your, your friend, the lawyer, and he is not a believer, he may give you good counsel in his profession, okay? But understand, if you go to that same lawyer and he says, well, this is how you should live, and he is not a believer, then he is giving you counsel that may or may not jive with the Word of God. Okay, same thing for any profession. I just picked on lawyers. Okay, um, so you don't take counsel from the wicked. You don't stand in the path of sinners. Okay, standing in the path of sinners. Here we have, this is the main drag for sinners over here. This is where they're hanging out, and this is where they're going, and this is what they're doing. And do you want to get on that path? And, and Scripture says, if you want to be blessed, don't get on the path. Okay, hang out in the path with the righteous. And we'll see that in a moment. Don't sit in the seat of the scoffers. Don't go over there where they're making fun of believers. Don't go over there where believers are seen as narrow and, and stupid and ignorant about real things in the world. And Because and, the scoffers, they sit outside and they kind of th- lob their scoffing bombs at believers. Now, if you want to go hang out with them to share the word of Christ with them, that's one thing. But if you want to go make your home with them, that's very bad. Ah, number two, here's the positive things. Verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that would be the word of God. This is where our delight needs to be. And on his law he meditates day and night. And, and remember that word meditates there is the same word that, we, that, that is used for the sound that the lion makes when the lion is eating. Okay. Now none of us have, probably, have a lion in their house, but maybe you have a cat, and you've heard that cat eating its little friskies, and it's just going, num, 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 when it eats. Okay? That's the sound that this word means. It meditates. When you meditate upon the word of God, you're supposed to be devouring it and contemplating it, and, and, and that little num, 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 num noise ought to be in here somewhere, okay, um, so that you get that idea that this is a joy. It's not, I have to go do my devotions today, I'll be back in 20 minutes, time me, okay. No, this is a joy to meditate upon his word. Why? One of the results of meditation is the blessing of the Lord. And what happens then? He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This is not a tree out in the desert. I was in Denver this week, and when you fly into Denver, you just don't see many trees, okay? Why? It just is dry. Now, 
When you come back here and you fly in, you fly over, if you come in from the north and you see Tennessee, you see the green and the lushness. Why? Because there's lots of water there and the trees love to be planted by water. When you're planted by the streams of water that you meditate upon the word of God, you will yield fruit in season. Your leaf will not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. Okay? Simple recipe. You want to be blessed by the Lord? I know it sounds so easy. Then do what he says. <laughs> you you'd want to be not blessed by the Lord? Then go and do what he tells you not to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's just there. It's just very clear there. So, so we get this idea here that this is an introduction to the Psalms. So if you want to be blessed by the Lord, then meditate on these things that come after. Okay? So... Um, the Hebrew now and psalms were to be used in worship. Now the Hebrew word for worship is the same word for prostration. Prostration to prostrate yourself is to throw yourself down on your face. We see this uh, is, is typically the attitude when um, when somebody stands before an angel or they're before the the presence of the Lord. They throw themselves down. Well, that means to worship. It is an it is an it is an action and a word that understands the position before the one to be worshipped. I, I am in submission to the one that I am worshipping. Okay? He is righteous. I am not. He is holy. I am not. And it is at his good pleasure that we are able to come into his presence and worship him. He is not our buddy. He is not our friend. He is a holy and righteous God from whom all blessings flow. This is the God we worship. And we are served well to remember that we exist at his good pleasure. And we exist for his purposes. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is why we are here. He did not create us because he was lonely. He did not create us because this was the best that he could do. He made us so that we might give him glory and praise. This book of Psalms is included here so that we might do that in a way that he likes. When we talk of worship, it is important to understand the first act of worship is from God. Now, it's not, he's not saying that, I'm not saying that God worships us, but the first activity is from God. Worship is always the outcome of something that is exterior to us, unless, of course, we are worshiping ourselves, then we're in big trouble. But God unveils himself. God reveals himself to us, not in all of his glory and totality of it, but enough that we must understand that he is completely other, that he is completely different than us, but he has created us in a form that we are here so we may worship him and Praise him. He cre- we are created by the power of his word. He brings light into darkness. He brings the joy into our midst. And that requires that we worship him. That is the second action. God unveils himself. The second action is that man worships. Let's turn over to Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, we have a short narrative about a guy, and I'll just put it in, in, in kind of the vernacular, about a guy who forgot to worship the Lord. 
or about a guy who said, I had other things going on, or he got involved in sin. And, and what happens when you're involved in sin? You really don't want to come to worship. You, you know, the question is raised, well, I haven't read, haven't read the Bible in, in, in four months, so I'm not feeling very close to the Lord. What happened four months ago? And what has been happening since then? Have you involved yourself in sin and now you, you just can't go to the word because you feel guilty? So the easiest thing is to put it aside and blame God that he's not speaking to you? Here's a guy who fell into sin, and this is the result. Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, so whose sin is covered. The first thing is this guy understands forgiveness. He understands what it means to fall into sin and to be forgiven. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, here's a little narrative of what happened in his life. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. So here he is. He is saying, when I kept silent, when I did not go to the Lord, when I did not worship him, when I did not cry out to him, my body was wasting. It would be like if, if you just refused to eat. And that's what happens. If you refuse to nourish yourself spiritually and to go to the Lord, then you begin to waste away spiritually. And he also says, Day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. The Lord did not leave him in the midst of this sin. He did not leave him in his time in the wilderness or the desert, but he felt the hand of the Lord upon him. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to thee and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. And then you see the word Selah there. That little word, and we'll see that a lot throughout the Psalms, means take some time, contemplate this in what it says. Okay? It, means, it doesn't mean continue to read. It doesn't mean take a little break. It means break, contemplate what you have just heard. Okay? When I didn't cry out to the Lord, my body was wasting, but I admitted my transgressions and I knew the forgiveness of sin and my guilt was no more. So just just an aside as an example of what the Lord does with us here. Now we'll find that each of the five books of the Psalter is concluded with a psalm that ends in a short doxology. Turn over a couple pages to Psalm 41. And we'll see this repeated uh, in Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 106, Psalm 145. This little short doxology at the end of every book, it comes pretty much in the same form. The end of Psalm 41, verse 13. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Okay? Just this little doxology at the end of every section, at the end of every of the five books of the Psalms. Okay? Now that gives us a structure and gives us an indication of the importance of the praise of our Heavenly Father. Now, let me run through a couple things that are structurally important for us because we're going to face these as we get into the book of Psalms. The entire collection of Psalms is entitled in the Hebrew, Praises. And later the rabbis often designated it as the Book of Praises. Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, and if you are ever reading something and seeing a, and see a capital L and two capital X's, that's the abbreviation for Septuagint. 
and that means 70 because they're Basically, there were 70 guys who went to different rooms and copied the Old Testament, and they all came out with the same translation. That's how they get that name, okay? So the Greek translation named it Psalms. And the Greek verb for the noun Psalms, which the noun Psalms comes from, devotes a plucking or a twanging. So we know that the Psalms were written in the south because there's twanging. Okay. Uh, but really we think that that's the association with musical instruments because some of the, the words here in the titles give direction for musicians. There are 116 psalms that have individual titles or uh, superscriptions to them. And they convey things like authorship, who the psalm is dedicated to, the historic occasion of the psalm. The um, liturgical assessment or assignment to the director of worship and how he was supposed to use this song. Um, whether the song is, uh, it was to have musical accompaniment or not. All these things are, are given to us in the title. If you're in Psalm 41, uh, just at the end, go to Psalm 42. It says, for the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Okay, and, and we'll... I'll give you what that means in, in just a moment. Okay, So that's an example of what the title is. Um, the psalm, a title if we see a psalm, um, then that indicates stringed accompaniment. There are 57 psalms that have that title. If we see the word song there, it's a joyful melody. There are 12 that have this. If we, like in, in 42, see the term maskil, M-A-S-K-I-L, it's a educational psalm. It's a uh, meditative psalm. Okay? Uh, and there are 13 labeled like that. There's another title called Miktam, and we don't know what that means. Miktam. Uh, then there are some psalms that are prayers and some psalms that are simply praises. Okay? And then there are a variety of lesser used titles that we don't know what they are. Now, the Psalms, we usually um, think of, as I said, Spurgeon said, it's called the Treasury of David. Well, David did not write all the Psalms. There are actually seven authors that we have uh, that we can identify as authors of the Psalms. David wrote at least 75 of them, at least 75. The sons of Korah accounted for at least 10, and then there are others like Solomon, Moses, who wrote the oldest psalm, that's Psalm 90, um, Heman and Ethan, and then there are 48 that we just don't know who wrote, uh, who wrote them. They're anonymous. Although there's uh, some thought that some of the other Old Testament authors did write them, and they were included, like Ezra, as an example. The psalms were collected over the course of some 900 years. So they go from the oldest, which would be Moses, somewhere... 14, 1450 B.C., uh, all the way up to the earliest, which would be uh, somewhere around 400 or 500 B.C. So they were written over the course of that time. Now, there is a lot of different information and a lot of different contexts and a lot of different um, experiences wrapped up in the Psalms. Okay? So that makes the Psalms very practical. Uh, I don't want you to think that, oh, well, the Psalms are, I I never understand them um, because I don't know what's going on there, so I really don't grasp it. Some are beautiful. We all can recite the 23rd Psalm, and and, uh, that's all I need. Well, 
Over the course of this study, the next maybe 20 years, we're going to find out the context, and we're going to find out what that means to me. Because these people were writing out of the midst of their own struggles. They were writing out of the midst of their own pain and their own heartache and their own joys. And they were, they were experiencing these things and they were crying out to God and say, sometimes even being very angry with God and saying, why are you doing this to me? And then we see, as they write the Psalms, how their attitude changes with the work of the Lord. And usually in, the, uh, in, in, in one particular type of song that, that seems very angry, they accuse God in the first couple of verses, and then by the end of the psalm, they're praising God because they've come to their senses, and yes, you are sovereign, yes, you are in control, and I'm going to be patient with what you're doing. Okay, That's just like us. How many of us have gone to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, why are you doing this to me? And if we're willing... To stay on our knees long enough, then we are reminded of God's sovereign care for us. And we are reminded that in the midst of whatever he is doing to us, he is right there with us. It's not as if he abandons us and says, I've had enough of you. He says, no, you are mine and I'm going to care for you even in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your struggle. So the Psalms is very practical, very practical. All right, let me give you some categories of Psalms. There's wisdom literature. As an example, Psalm 1 is wisdom literature. It it teaches us, it guides us for for daily living. It gives us direction that we might walk in the path of the Lord. Um, And, and, you know, there's a long list of each of these psalms that, that I won't go into, but there's a bunch of wisdom psalms. The second is royal psalms, and there are quite a few royal psalms. Uh, Psalms for occasions when they were uh, crowning the new king or uh, doing something special and they would write about this. Um, One of the royal psalms is Psalm 54 and it was apparently a psalm for a royal wedding. Okay, that was written for a particular occasion um, uh, where we see that, that, that there's a mixture of the king and God, and they refer back and forth between these two. And we'll, that's one of the things that we'll get to and, and be able to look at. But in the royal psalms, we are reminded of, of God sits on the ultimate throne. Now, under that category, there are several psalms that, we, that deal with what we call Christology, that deal with Jesus Christ. And they point to him, or, they, or the New Testament quotes these psalms at particular times and, and takes them and say, yes, I know almost like, like prophecy. These apply to this in the short term, but in the long term, they apply here. That's why on Good Friday, we can look at Psalm 22 and say that psalm deals with the things of Christ on the cross. Okay? It's, it's, it is very clear there. We see Psalm 41 uh, quoted in John 13. We see Psalm 69 quoted in John 2 and in John 15. We see Psalm 22 in dealing with the crucifixion in Matthew 27, John 19. Psalm 2 quoted in Acts 4. We see this on and on again that they go back and say, this is what the Lord doing. This is the fulfillment of these things from the Psalms. So next we have the Psalms of Lament. I don't have the words. What do I do? You go to the Psalms of Lament, you read them, you pray them, you cry out to the Lord in these Psalms. We see that these Psalms would say, Lord, I'm dying here. Are you not paying attention to me? Yes, we find in the Laments, 
The Lord is paying attention. We are never out of his sight. And then the next one is what we call imprecatory psalms. Lord, and this is just kind of in, in Randy's translation, Lord, my neighbor is being such a jerk, will you come and strike him dead? Okay? That's an imprecatory psalm. And we see this quite often where, where it's the enemies of God that the godly people are calling the wrath of God down upon. And to some extent, it's cathartic, cathartic cleansing, um, uh, where, where I just feel better. Okay, I, I wanted to say these things to the Lord, but I was afraid to. But I, I finally went ahead and I feel better. And secondly, when we see it in the Psalms, it's usually judicially correct. They are the enemies of God. They have been unrighteous. They are not being arbitrary and asking for the judgment of God upon people who burn their dinner or something like that. They're calling for the judgment of God upon those who have persecuted the people of God, who have done evil to the people of God. And then we see God act in his judgment very, very often. Psalms of Thanksgiving. Of course, there are corporate and personal psalms where the, the whole crowd came together and sang these great psalms of thanksgiving to the Lord, and other times where they are written as very individual psalms. And, and we'll get there as we go along. Sooner or later, your homework will be to write your own psalm. Okay? And it might be an imprecatory psalm for you. Lord! Can't you do something with my neighbor? Okay? Or it might be this psalm of thanksgiving, or it might be this psalm of lament, wherever you are in your context at that time when, when that is our homework. Okay? There are pilgrim psalms that they would sing on the way to Jerusalem, and then there are enthronement psalms. Lord, you reign on high. You are the God. You have created everything. It, enthronement psalms are really psalms that look to the Lord of who he is and his character. Now, I want to remind you that psalms are poetry, okay? So there is a, a what we call a poetic license that is used there. Uh, so you will find a lot of different things that fit into that genre of poetry. You will find parallelism, where the same thing seems to be repeated again and again. Or, this, or it's, it's the flip side of that is you'll have something repeated and it's the opposite repeated, after that. So you'll find parallelism, you'll find figures of speech, and, and the best example, uh, the way these are listed, is God is described what we call anthropomorphically. God, God's grace or God's power is seen like a thunderstorm. God's power is seen like the raging sea. That's describing God in an anthropomorphic fashion. So we see that in the Psalms. And then we see acrostics. You want to learn the Hebrew alphabet this week? Go read Psalm 119. Every section begins with the next Hebrew letter. Okay? So just cool things like that in the Psalms. So keep in mind that Psalms are poetry and we have to read them as such. If we went to the Psalms in a purely rationalistic or a, or a real sterile form, we would not get from them what God has intended for us to have. You should read the Psalms and cry. Not all of them, but some. You should read the Psalms and rejoice. You should read the Psalms and take away something that, that fills your heart with a confidence that you cannot find in other places. 
Okay, uh, when in the same type of thing, when you go to the Lord, you go to the Lord not in a sterile or rationalistic fashion, but in a way that you cry out to Him and you lay yourself before the Lord. So the psalm the psalm writers are trying to draw out of us our emotion, trying to draw out from us not our intellect, but but here from the heart, so that we understand the Lord in that fashion. Many of the psalms flow from real-life situations. It's not that some guy sat down and abstractly wrote out Psalm 23. David wrote it because he understood what a shepherd was like. David understood what it was like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and not fear. David understood what it meant to have his cup overflow from the things of God as he would pour grace into his life and he describes it in this fashion that my cup overflows with the things of God okay psalms are written out of those types of contexts one commentator said they're often wet with the tears and the blood of the writer David writes uh Psalm 3, Psalm 7, 18, 34, 51, 52, 54, 56, 57, 59, 60, 63, and Psalm 142. I am running for my life. All the same themes. I am running for my life. I think I'm going to die. The Lord delivers me. And then after that, he comes back and he writes a psalm about it. Okay, They all kind of have the same theme. Probably when he was out in the desert and Saul was trying to kill him. Real life is the birthplace of psalms. Don't think it doesn't apply to us. It does. It is in there for us to draw out and to find challenge and to find blessing from. God will be made real to us in the psalms in the coming months, in the coming years, as we return back to them. They are the very words that our Heavenly Father wants us to have today. Don't think, well... They were written 3,000 years ago, so they really don't understand my context. They don't understand what I'm feeling. These guys do. We will find healing, and we will find joy, and we will find praise of our Heavenly Father in our study of the Psalms. So let's pray. Lord, your, your word is rich. It is richer than we can, can imagine. And, and, and for those who don't believe, Lord, there's so often a... A misunderstanding. Well, how can you be comforted in those words? Well, those words are the vehicle that the Holy Spirit uses to speak to us, to remind us that you are righteous and holy, that you have created us, that all power and authority rests with you, and you love us enough to call us your own. You love us enough to draw us into, unto yourself that we might experience this grace and this mercy. That when our hearts are hurting, we can cry out to you. When we are angry, we can come to you. When we are afraid, we can come to you. And we can find the remedy and the answer and the care in all of these things there at the throne of grace. Lord, we pray that we would be honest with ourselves, with where we are, with what we're feeling. And we would take those things to you. And we would lay them before you, Lord. You have the answer. You have the comfort. You have the challenge. You have the admonition for us. 
But it is there at the throne of grace that all of these things need to be laid. As we study your word, Lord, help us understand this, that these things would be a means for us to cry out to you, to rejoice in what you're doing, and to know you and to worship you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.